straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. Christianity claims that God has made human persons in His image, and that God plans on saving humanity from death through resurrection. But what does any of that mean? In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. J.T. Turner to discuss human nature and resurrection. J.T. explains his functional understanding of the image of God and his hylomorphic account of human nature. We also examine some of J.T.'s reasons for rejecting the intermediate state between death and resurrection. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's J.T. and I talking about human nature and resurrection. Enjoy. All right, so JT, you're an expert on human nature and life after death. So why don't you start with some of the basics of the Christian story about humanity and then work our way towards life after death? And so part of the Christian story is that God created human persons. So let's just start with a a fundamental question here, just what is a human person? Right, yeah, so that's... uh... That's not a, that's not a tricky question at all. No, I'm kidding. No. Uh, yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of ways that I could answer that one question. So let me say, or at least try and answer in two different ways. So first, there's what I would call a theological answer, and I take it that a human person is a divine image bearer. So human persons are to be the one that bear God's image. So what are human persons? Well, better question is what are God's uh, image bearers, well, the royal and priestly representatives of God in his creation. At least that's the theological answer that I think is right. Okay, so a theological answer to the question, what is a human person, is to say they're image bearers, they're some sort of royal or priestly representatives of, of God, like for creation. That's right, that's right, yep. Okay. Yep. And then there's a philosophical answer to that. Uh, the two will be are connected, and we can get into that later. But as you uh, know, the philosophical way I think about human persons is a in a roughly sort of Thomistic, Aristotelian fashion. And when I say that, just for the Thomists out there listening, I don't mean that the view mm-hmm. that I have is Thomas's view, God forbid, that they think so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, Thomas, uh, <laughs> it's, they're a notoriously tricky bunch. They are. But in any case, I... What I mean by that is the view that I have on human persons is largely influenced by the way I think Thomas reads Aristotle. Uh, I think okay. it's a good exegete for Aristotle anyway. Uh, so anyways, I think in those sorts of, way, uh, sorts of ways. So the first thing, though, that I want to say about persons is something that Thomas is going to say, and pe- he's just following people before him, is that human per- or that persons generally are just individual substances of a rational nature. Okay. And humans are a particular kind of this substance, namely a living organism. So these particular organisms are organisms that have a rational nature, and that's just to say that they have a capacity to be rational, whether or not that's ever in fact realized. Right. So my philosophical answer just is that a human person is a human organism. Right. Okay. So a human organism, but it has this other power, this other property, which is to be rational. And it doesn't mean they have to be exercising that. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's got the ability to be rational, whether or not it uh, ever actually comes to, in fact, be rational, like actually working out rational sorts of things. 
it uh, just by virtue of the organism that it is has the capacity sort of built in, if you like. Okay. And so, and then it's also the case that even if they are able to start actualizing some of the rationality, it's not like it doesn't have to be really high degree of rationality either. No, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, somebody could suffer severe brain damage um, Mm. or never fully grow into a, you know, fully formed, highly intellectual kind of being, and they would still be rational animals. Right. Okay. Because I'm just thinking of like lots of different cases, cases like severe brain damage. uh, So we'd still say, well, they're a human person because they meet our definition. Mm -hmm. And then I could also think of lots of politicians that people don't like at the moment. And they would want to be like, well, they're not being rational. So they can't be a human person. You're saying, no, 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 they are. doesn't mean they're always perfectly rational. They just have the ability to be rational. That's right. They still fail at that ability massively, but but they've got it. That's right. So on my view, so one of the worries that sometimes comes up with things like this when people say, oh, well, human persons are rational animals. Well, that means then if that if they ever fail to actualize this property, then they cease to be human persons, right? You get these mm-hmm. kinds of cases in, um, you know, people in persistently vegetative states. This comes up in, you know, pro- abortion sorts of arguments or pro-life arguments. Well, look, the fetus isn't a rational being yet, so it's not a human person and so on. And I just want to say, no, the human organism, just by definition, is a rational animal. It never has to Mm -hmm. hit a particular stage in its development. It just is, as soon as it comes into being, a rational animal. What we then see is how the rational capabilities are fleshed out or actualized. Okay. Okay. That's, I think that's really useful because I think it does really kind of nail down this understanding of human person in a way that would address lots of issues. And then it has lots of implications for ethics, for politics, for all sorts of things. So that at least makes it interesting. Yeah. So in my view, human organisms never lose the property being a rational animal. They just always are that thing. Okay. So it's essential to who they are or to what they are. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay, so I want to come back to something you said earlier. So, because part of the Christian story that you just mentioned is that humans are created in the image of God. And sometimes people argue that the image of God entails a particular philosophical account of human nature. So, for example, someone might argue that, well, since I'm made in the image of God, then I am a soul and I have a body. And so that raises, I guess, two questions for me at the moment. So the first one is, well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God to like to get a bit more detail there? And then second, does the image of God imply a particular philosophical account of human nature? So like I mentioned earlier, I take it that being an image bearer of God, and I, and I mean not just a generic God, but like the Christian God, Yahweh, just is to be his royal and priestly representative in his creation. So we're the creatures through whom Yahweh in particular wishes to rule and care for his creation. I mean, there's lots built into that, but... That's the sort of underlying understanding. So now part of that task is to do, in all that we do, declare that this creation is Yahweh's and make it a proper place for his worship. Okay, now some of the imagery here you'll start to hear, I'm, I'm borrowing from lots of people, mm-hmm. G.K. Beale, N.T. Wright, and so on, that the creation is, I think, properly speaking, supposed to be a temple to Yahweh. Oh, okay. So, so if the so if the creation is like a temple, yeah. like you see in a lot of Old Testament, New Testament scholars wanting to say, yep. well, then to be in the image of God, you said was to be a priest. Well, it makes sense if I've been placed in something that's like a temple. Yeah, that that's that's right. Yeah, it's a way. It's a it's a place where we're supposed to help facilitate the worship of Yahweh in His creation. You know, throughout the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman world, in particular, images, as far as I understand the literature, anyway, just are things that 
are in like corporally localizable, localized in temples that declare the presence of that temple's God there in that mm. worship space. And I think that's honestly, I think that's ultimately what humans are doing in uh, Yahweh's temple, namely the entire creation. Now, you asked if this implies a particular metaphysics of human nature. Right, yeah. Yeah, so there's a sense in which I think that it does, but not in a way that many in the Christian tradition have normally suggested. So, for example, I don't think that it tells us, us being image bearers, that is, tells us that we have, say, an immaterial part, right? There's been, here's a sort of uh, all-too-easy and maybe caricatured summary. But there have been you know, people in the past who've said things like, well, look, God is spirit, and hey, we're like in his image and likeness, so we must be spirits too, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely run those arguments when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. right. So I don't, I don't think that's what the, the scriptures are telling us. So I, I don't want to draw any metaphysical conclusions like that. Well, God's kind of like a soul or a mind, therefore I must be like a soul or a mind, that sort of thing. So I don't think that being made in God's image implies any kind of ontological similarity. Okay. So I don't think it you know requires of us that we have an immaterial, substantial soul or anything. But given the sorts of duties to which God has called his image bearers, so what specifically Yahweh wants his images to do, I think implies that his images are going to have the capacity to be wise. He commands in back in... Genesis for his creatures to to rule and steward his creation, and that to me takes a lot of wisdom. I mean, heck, I'm, I'm newly a homeowner, mm-hmm. and as I look out in my back garden, it's a, a bit of a mess, and I just think, wow, the wisdom that I lack in how to caretake for <laughs> right. this garden, but I know others that do. Now, I, I know who can't do it. My dog, Theo, has no idea right. how to, and he couldn't even developed the idea of how to develop the garden and, and keep it and caretake it. Somebody who's a, a rational creature, who can think about thinking, who can understand the order and complexity of the environment is the kind of thing that can tend to that garden. Well, if you think that humans, not just being sort of priestly representatives of Yahweh, but to be his sort of stewards and caretakers of his creation, if you can think of them in gardener sorts of language, then I'm going to say that that's going to require his image bearers, his representatives to be able to do wise and rational sorts of things. So that's a long way of saying, I think it does require of us that we have minds. Mm -hmm. Now, But it doesn't give you a particular thesis about minds. It doesn't tell you that a mind just is an immaterial thing or a mind is a physical thing. It doesn't tell you either way. It just tells you whatever those image bearers are, they have to have minds. That's right. That's correct. Yep, that's right. Yeah, in other words, yeah, we got to have minds. So uh, another implication of that is I think that given what Yahweh wants his image bearers to do, mm-hmm. he's it requires that his image bearers be persons given the task. Yeah, so, and, and I think that's an easy inference to make because you just look at like the biblical claims, like God says, Adam and Eve, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this. Well, he would have to give human persons like certain properties or powers or capacities in order to fulfill those roles Otherwise, why would he give them those roles? So it's going to have to entail that they've got the ability to think uh, somewhat rationally, to be able to perform actions freely, something like that. Yeah, that that that's right. Yep. Uh, now I take a kind of controversial stance on this. I don't know if anybody, I don't know who who else agrees with me on this, but I, I sort of have the claim that if God had wanted, you know, raccoons say to be his image bearers, they could have been. 
It's just that he wouldn't have given his image bearers the same sort of tasks that he's given us. It would have been something else, like, oh, raccoons are running around, and hey, we know that Yahweh is here because there's his images, but the, the image-bearing task wouldn't have been to rule and steward the creation, if you like, or to make it inhabitable for Yahweh. Oh, I see. Okay, because okay, because you're really taking this idea of image to be a function or a role, uh, and so whatever that function or role is, well, you need things that can satisfy that role, right? But that role could be lots of different things. That's right. And so yeah. it could have been, yeah, yeah raccoons. Because uh, uh, to be the image bearer of God, uh, I just define the role to be climbing up trees and stuff and knocking over trash cans. Well, yeah. Here's some creatures I can make that'll do that. Raccoons. Yeah. Right. Exa- exactly. Now, I mean, you know, some people are, I've, 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 that may not be a correct view, but my view is heavily functional in that way. And so I, I get my ontology of, he- of God's image bearers, namely that they got to be persons precisely because of the function that he gives to the images, not because we're images as such. Okay. That's okay. That makes sense. All right, so I want to come back to again to something earlier you said. So earlier you had said that a human person is a is a human organism. Well, I, I guess if I were to hear that, it kind of makes me think, well, a human person just is a physical object. But you mentioned some things about minds, and you mentioned some things a bit about like immateriality here. So, like, is is your view something like substance dualism, uh, that, that, which is just the view that I am a body and I have a soul, or do you have some sort of difference from this view? Yeah, so um, on substance, substance dualism is tricky. Like what substance dualism is and what a human person is will depend on the substance dualist. So you might catch sure. some that say things like, well, a human person is two independent substances. You got the substance of the human body and the substance of the human soul. Now, any substance dualist is going to tell you that those two substances are part of substance dualism. Now, what they're going to differ on is whether or not those two substances are the one human person. And that seems to be mm, odd because right. identity doesn't go two directions. I can't be identical to two different things. It doesn't seem like anyway. Right. Um, most substance dualism, uh, substance dualists with, with with whom I interact anyway, typically default when pressed and say, "Oh no, no, actually, I'm identical to my soul." But the human sort of thing, if you like, is this human soul attached to a human body. That human body is also a substance. Neither one requires the other for its existence, which is why they're substances. They're independently existing Mm -hmm. or potentially independently existing objects. I don't think that's what human persons are. So when I say human organisms and I mention that we have minds, again, I'm thinking more uh, along sort of Thomistic and Aristotelian lines, which is to say that we are compounds of metaphysical parts, neither of Mm -hmm. which exist independently of the human organism. Uh, These are parts, you know, that we have all kinds of terms for, but form and prime matter are the sort of Thomistic Aristotelian ways of thinking about things. Okay. In any case, those two metaphysical parts really are metaphysical causes that explain the existence of the one substance, namely the human organism. So I should perhaps mention why I'm not a physicalist too, right? Physicalists are those that in a rough way of speaking, think that human persons just are physical objects all the way down. Right. Uh, that every bit of a human organism is, at least in principle, observable under a microscope. Right. And so a physicalist is going to say, you have no non-physical parts. But you're wanting to say, well, I've got, I've got some non-physical parts. Yeah, that's right. I, I want to say that there, there's more to the human being than just things you can view under a microscope. There are... Mm 
metaphysical constituents, things that just in principle aren't the sorts of things amenable to the physical sciences or anything like that, namely form and prime matter. But that's because, you know, the view I take is what we call hylomorphism, Mm -hmm. that Aristotelian Thomistic sort of view. And that's a thesis about just the way things are in the world. So I don't think anything is purely physical. I don't think rocks are purely physical. I don't think tables are purely physical. I don't think houses are purely physical. Nothing is purely physical. Everything is made up insofar as it exists. If it's a substance, it is a form and prime matter composite. Uh, Now, whether or not it's an organism just depends on the kind of form that it has. Mm. Yeah, that sort of thing. Okay, so this hylomorphism, and this applies to just about everything in the created order. Yeah, that's right. And so with human persons, so I'm, so I'm a substance dualist and I say I am a soul and I have a body and I could exist without my body. But like on your hylomorphic account, you're going to say eh, you're not two substances. Like a person, human person is just one substance and these two things, they can't, they can't separate. Yeah. Uh, whereas I, like on the dualist I'm go- story. I'm can. going to say that, yes. Now, m- pretty much every Thomist, well... No. Uh, Thomists divide on whether or not I can survive the death of my organism. Right. You have, this may get us too off track, but you've got these competing claims inside Thomism. We've got survivalists that think mm-hmm. that I do in some way survive the death of my organism. And then we've got corruptionists that say, well, I don't survive even if my form or soul does. And, and then it gets murky on both of those accounts, whether or not what's happening is that we're then positing whether or not the disembodied soul, whether it be I or not, is a substance. I'm going to say that the proper way to think of hylomorphism is that whatever we, whatever we want to say of the soul or the form, it cannot be a substance. There is just one substance in the organism, and that's the organism itself. Right, because I think I remember previous conversations we've had and some previous publications you've, you've, you've put out as well, you like argued in a very interesting way, I, I found, that Look, if we're really going to be committed to the metaphysics here, the underlying metaphysics, then these two things—the form and the and the and the matter—they cannot come apart. Yeah, that's like, right. Uh, and and then I would not be able to survive because I am identical to the form matter compound. Yeah, so. that's right. I I think I honestly that I think that was Aristotle's view, and the only reason that I think that mm-hmm. Thomists, you know, coming from Aquinas and and guys before him, the only reason I think that they even began to posit the separability of form from matter. Like the existing separability. I mean, like on Aristotelianism, like if the form matter come apart, well, then the thing is destroyed. The only reason I think that the Thomists and so on think that the form continues to survive is they're trying to wed sort of Catholic, you know, views, well, Christian views of life after death uh, with Aristotelian metaphysics. And I just think that the standard lines don't work well together. Okay, so let's let's get into that issue a bit more here. Okay. So I've got this kind of account of human nature that you've laid out, this sort of Aristotelian account, and then you just brought up a Christian story of life after death. And so because Christianity claims that God's going to save us from death by giving us some sort of life after death. Yeah. Well, uh, so let's get into that a little bit here. What are, what are some of the unique claims of the Christian understanding of life after death? Okay, so let me start with something that's not unique. Uh, so okay. sometimes Christians think that—so the, Christ, the Christian hope of life after death is the bodily resurrection. That is, like, if you look in the creeds, you know, no matter how much we talk about souls going off to heaven and so on, really, the nuts and bolts of it, the central thesis, I mean— from like 1 Corinthians 15 on has been, look, the resurrection of the body. If there's no resurrection, we are, to speak loosely, screwed. Right. 
you got to have a resurrection, okay? Now, but that's not unique. That's not unique with Christianity. Uh, so far as I understand it, anyway, there are mm-hmm. streams of Jewish thought, particularly in the first century, that were looking for the bodily resurrection of the dead. And I even know less about this, but I think this is right. Mm. Islamic theology also has built into it a doctrine of the bodily resurrection. So that's... Yeah, from what I understand, most streams of uh, Islamic thought, they they affirm bodily resurrection. Yeah, I think that's just general with the Abrahamic faiths. Yeah. So that's not unique to Christians, okay, that we hope for a bodily resurrection. What is unique to Christians is that we think that the resurrection has already started. Mm. It started with the bodily resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And the Apostle Paul calls that the first fruits of the resurrection. It's this kind of pictorial language that's supposed to point towards a promised coming harvest, if you like, of bodies from the dead. It's, it, it's Paul's way of saying and the Scripture's way of saying, look, we know the resurrection's going to happen because it's already begun in Jesus. It will happen right, to us okay. because it happened to him. That's unique. I don't know if anybody, any other religious claims or religious sects that can say that the resurrection has started. We, I mean, we have our whole religion sort of, at least in my view, rise and falls on that. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what we're doing here is nonsense. Right. Yeah. I, I, I feel pretty confident with that as well, that yeah, yeah if, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then I don't, I don't understand the point of Christianity. No, right. Like, That's exactly right. Yep. Okay, so so we've got this sort of view now here uh, about life after death. Well, there's this fairly like traditional Christian understanding of how the resurrection goes, and it goes a little something like this. It usually says, well, when I die, my soul goes to be with God while my body rots in the ground or is lost at sea or something, whatever, you know. And so my, my soul goes to this place called the intermediate state, and this is like some sort of location where my, my soul just kind of hangs out until Christ returns. And then when, when Christ comes back, he brings about the general resurrection of the dead, uh, which means that all the souls hanging out, they get resurrected bodies and they get to enjoy like a resurrected universe. And to me, I mean, I think that sounds pretty great. Like, I, I really like that. But from like some of your research, uh, that you know, your publications and whatnot, you disagree with this particular understanding of the resurrection story. So what are some of the reasons for thinking that this particular like account of like the intermediate state and then the resurrection, like what are some reasons for thinking that that view is false? So as you know, right, uh, I just deny out of hand that humans go, you know, quote unquote, go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is when people, yeah, in, in least the most Western Christian the, uh, theology anyway, think of the intermediate state, what they mean is, at least for, you know, redeemed persons or whomever God is going to save, when they talk about the intermediate state, what they mean is something like going to be with Jesus after they die. So right. the idea is that, well, I, I die and then my soul goes to be with the risen Lord in heaven, Okay. So I just deny that that happens uh, because I think that the story is that heaven comes to earth. I think that's the picture that and the promise that we're given, you know, all through the biblical story leading up to the end of Revelation. I mean, I think that that's actually the travesty that happens in the fall is that we've got this picture of heaven and earth kind of combined, if you like, and mm-hmm. those pictures get get pretty interesting. And what happens is sort of a Again, this is all sort of pictorial or metaphorical language. Sure. Heaven and earth sort of split. Anyway, the idea is that that sort of fracture is going to be is going to be healed. So anyway, heaven comes to earth. So I don't think humans go up to heaven. Now, okay. So hang on, I yeah. want to make sure I'm following. So 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 your so your claim is, 
well, like a lot of people, they want to say, well, when I die, I go to go to heaven. But you're saying, right. no, 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 the the, 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 story, the biblical story, as you understand it, is not that I go to heaven, but it's that heaven comes back to earth or that heaven and earth become reunited in some interesting way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, so that's a kind of standard way of thinking about the intermediate state. There's this notion, it's a really robust view of, of sort of disembodied life after death that I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. we've got all these words that we've used for it in the past, like paradise, heaven, being with Christ and so on. Right. I mean, you know, if you go to a Christian funeral and Billy's laying in the grave or grandma's laying in the grave, you're like, well, they're in a much better place, like looking down on us. They're like, you know, worshiping Jesus, they're healed, you know, and so on. My problem with that view is that if we build all that goodness into the state between death and bodily resurrection, then bodily resurrection comes out superfluous. Oh, okay. Cause so, if, so if it's true that, you know, my grandmother uh, is in a better place now, well, it's, it's a, it's a paradise. It's pretty awesome. Then I, why would I really need resurrection after that? Because she's already in a really awesome place. Yeah, I mean, it's not even just like it's just better. I mean, the way, like, think about this: the, the Westminster mm-hmm. Confession of Faith, Chapter Thirty-Three, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I mean, you know, two catechetical documents that, at least in the history of Christian thought, couldn't be more supposedly right. Supposedly, sure. more opposite, right? Uh, yeah. Say with just this super robust language, like, what happens to the souls of men after they die, and women? Well, they go and behold the face of light and glory. And the way the Catholic Mm -hmm. Catechism puts it, and I don't have the quote right in front of me, it's something like, in complete and perfect ultimate perfection, something like this. And you just go, this is all before the bodily resurrection? Well, that sounds pretty darn good. And s- yeah, because if it's if it's complete perfection, if you've got like a beatific vision or something like that, yeah. it couldn't get any better. Well, even if it could get better, it'd be like, well, I'm eating the world's best ice cream sundae, and somebody asks, mm-hmm. would you like a cherry on top? And you go, I mean, yeah, it'd be better. But would it be meaningfully better? Well, not really. And so that's my, that that's a, that's a major issue with me, because I think that underlying all of that in Christian theology is this basic theological truth that the bodily resurrection is not a superfluous hope of afterlife. I mean, you read that in Paul, you read that Irenaeus, you read that through all the church fathers, like, look, guys, if there's no resurrection, we're done. Like, this is this is not good. Mm-hmm. And so I think we've got these sort of competing claims uh, inside the Christian tradition, which, you know, ended up pointing me away from this robust view of the intermediate state. Okay, so the, so the main the main argument here is, if, if if this intermediate state really is as amazing as say like uh, Catholic confessions and Protestant confessions make it out to be, then the whole idea of resurrection is just completely undermined, because resurrection, as you understand it, is you know like that's that's absolutely crucial for the Christian story, but it seems like it's it's really not doing anything with the way people are describing the intermediate state. Is there any sort of like biblical basis for this though, like for this sort of view, for this like sort of superfluous argument? Yeah, so I get it from 1 Corinthians 15. Like I think Paul is offering us there an argument for, well, he's offering the Corinthian church an argument for why they should take it seriously that Jesus rose from the dead. But I think underlying Paul's argument is a notion that the resurrection has to be the case. If it's not the case, then we're dead in our sins, we've got no hope for an afterlife, and so on. So if you want, I can run a really quick, well, I don't know how quick it is, but, it, but an argument. Uh, okay, so and you said this is based off of like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's right, that's right. So Okay, 
you know. Uh, so give me give me the so argument. So look at one one Corinthians fifteen verses sixteen and nineteen for this. But okay, here's the first premise. Now keep in mind. Well, let me just go ahead and say it. So the first premise is if human beings go to paradise, okay? Now lump in there all the traditional views of what people think about paradise, right? It's this really mm-hmm. perfect place. If human beings go to paradise at the death of their bodies and are alive there in a disembodied state, then they're not dead in their sins, right? They're alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, because you can't be dead if can't you're be alive. Dead if you're alive so. okay? And they're certainly not in hell or anything like that. They're in paradise, so they're yeah. not dead in their sins, okay? That's premise one. Premise two, if human beings go to paradise at the death of their bodies and are alive there in a disembodied state, then they have hope beyond this life and not hope in this life only. Of course, right? Seems, tell, seems pretty straightforward. Seems yeah. pretty straightforward. Three, if human beings go to paradise at the death of their bodies and are alive there in a disembodied state, then they are not the objects of pity. Right. Well, I guess I wouldn't pity uh, anybody. But pity poor grandma hanging out with Jesus. Yeah. No, 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 no. Not the objects of pity. So, yeah. the conclusion, if human humans go to paradise at the death of their bodies and are alive there in a disembodied state, then they are neither dead in their sins, nor do they have hope in this life only, nor are they the objects of pity. A short way of saying that is that if the intermediate state of this sort obtains, Mm -hmm. then the bodily resurrection is not the only hope of not being dead in one's sins, one's having hope in this a uh, hope beyond this life, and uh, one's not being the object of pity. But, as I say, go look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 19. And Paul's going to say, no, if there's no resurrection, you have hope in this life only, you are dead in your sins, and you are, of all people, most to be pitied. Right, right, right. Okay, so yeah, so the way Paul, is, is, the way it really sounds like Paul's talking here in 1 Corinthians 15 is no resurrection, no hope. And if I do get to go to like this paradise place after I die before resurrection, it sounds pretty awesome. Uh, and I could have that sort of thing without resurrection. And that seems something I definitely would put my hope in. So right. something, yep. so that just doesn't mesh with what Paul is saying at first Corinthians 15. That's right. And so, you know, I've had some comebacks like, no, 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 they're talking about G, you know, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus has to have risen from the dead. And I'm like, no, though, the, the thesis that he's running with is that whatever's true of Jesus is true of humans. Okay, there's an mm. entailment. There's, a, there's not just an entail. Yeah, there's an entailment relation. There's an, a mutual implication. Because we can also say what's true of humans has to be true of Jesus, right? So if it's the case that humans, not, so not, not Jesus humans, but other humans, can go to paradise, right, without bodily resurrection, then so can Jesus, so Jesus is hmm. going, Jesus is dying and not being bodily resurrected doesn't say anything to us on this view of the intermediate state about what Jesus' ultimate fate is. I mean, he could have, as a perfectly righteous human, gone to paradise, disembodied, and so on. The bodily resurrection doesn't function to do anything. Now, one thing, pushback I've heard is like, well, no, it's like God's testimony to us that Jesus is alive. It's like an apologetic sort of thing. Like, no, nah, mm-hmm. that's not what Paul says. Paul's hmm. like tell it seems to be telling us, and I think the Jewish hope is like if you read the Psalms and so on, uh, when they're crying out for God to, to restore justice, I mean, you know, they're asking for people to be brought back to life. Like, how can you let right. the righteous dead just like sit there in shale? You got to bring them back. It's not enough for just like them to go flitting off somewhere. No, God has to redeem the creation. Like the everything hangs uh, in my view, and I think this is what Paul's saying on uh, the bodily resurrection. But that's because I think that the bodily resurrection is just one part of a macroscopic or a macrocosmic whole, that what's really in view here is that God's not just aiming to redeem humans. He wants to redeem the entire creation. Mm. That's the point. 
Okay, so I need to think about that more because I typically take the First Corinthians passage to be about Jesus's resurrection, um, and so you're saying no, there's a lot more built into it here. And, yeah, and you think you've got some really good exegetical grounds for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. All right, so so you've got some reasons then for rejecting this traditional understanding of the intermediate state prior to resurrection. Uh, well, I guess I, uh, since I'm so completely lost in like you know the more traditional view, I'm like, hey, like that sounds really awesome. Now you're telling me no, it's not so great. Well, I want to know like what is the alternative here? So like like what do you think happens when I die, and what do you think happens between my death and resurrection? Yeah, so that, that that's the million dollar question. Uh, yeah. So you know, I wrote I wrote an entire book trying to figure out what to say about that. Yeah. So the quick and dirty way to say it is that I think humans immediately after their deaths are resurrected into the new creation. But okay. that sentence is really vague because everything hangs on what in the world I mean by that word immediately. So yeah. just to clear things up, I'm going to deny things like soul sleep that I, or, or anything like that, right? So I deny that, first of all, that you, you, you are a, a soul that could just be disembodied and then be unconscious awaiting for the resurrection. I deny that. But I also deny the idea that you blink out of existence and then just come back mm. into existence uh, when Jesus returns, right? Think of like... Right, because so, like, so I can see like on the first one, like since your understanding of what a human person is, you couldn't exist apart from your human organism. Right. So soul sleep, that's just out. It's just not, not possible given what you think human nature is. And the gappy existence, like I think that just sounds bad on every single view of human nature because yeah. the idea that I cease to exist and then I come back, like, I just think that's impossible like that. That's, that's, that's not good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. The metaphysics there gets squirrely. There's this, there's this kind of metaphysical intuition that probably you and I both share, like a thing that begins to exist, can't cease to exist, and then begin to exist again. Right, because I, I can't have two beginnings. That's just, that's just, that sounds uh, uh, just implausible. Yeah, yeah that, I think that's right as well. I mean, there's other, there are people that deny that, but I, my intuitions, I can't wrap my head around that. So yeah, I want to deny anything like gappy existence or soul sleep, but I also want to deny... Well, I want to deny the denial of the general resurrection. So I want to affirm the general re resurrection. There just is a time at which Christ returns and all the dead are raised. Mm. Okay. Um, so it's not the case that on my view, even though I said, you know, if you died right now, immediately, the next thing that would happen to you is that you resurrect when Christ returns. Okay. But it's not the case that you, Ryan, are sitting there waiting for your buddy JT to pop up in the resurrection world or whatever. No, I mm -hmm. think that what happens is if you were to die right now, you would reach the, eschat uh, the eschaton when Jesus returns, and I would be there too. Now, how to make that work, that is the really tricky thing to figure out, like how to actually uh, draw up a metaphysical model for that. How it works and what the metaphysical model should be, I mean, the short answer to that is I don't know, but in the book I mentioned earlier, uh, I... I spend a chapter or two trying to carve out a model that just, I mean, the aim of it is kind of modest. It's just to say, hey, look, mm -hmm. immediate resurrection theories don't have to involve a denial of the general resurrection, nor do they have to just resolve into a punt to mystery where we just don't want to say anything about it. Instead, I wanted to say, look, no, maybe there is a way we actually can think about this and draw up a metaphysics to show that the idea is coherent 
even if the model's not right. I mean, honestly, it's just kind of out there as a sort of, I don't know if heuristic device is the right term, but it's a kind of prompt for guys way smarter than me, like HUD Hudson, to come along and put some real flesh on the bones I've put out. Okay, so really quick, why don't you tell everybody listening what the name of your book is? Yeah, so the name is uh, On the Resurrection of the Dead, borrowing mm-hmm. that from Athenagoras, a nice classic t- title. Yeah, so On the Resurrection of the Dead, colon, a new metaphysics of afterlife for Christian thought. And that's right. how with Rutledge okay. Press, and, yeah. And so you've got like a bunch of suggestions in the book for how you could tell this intermediate, uh, or I'm sorry, not this intermediate state, because you want, you give arguments against the intermediate state. Yeah. But in your book, you give uh, some basic suggestions for this is maybe how we could have an immediate resurrection view. That's right. Yeah, I, I come up with a model I call eschatological presentism, which we can get into if, if you like. And I combine that with my hylomorphic view of persons to say, hey, look, here's a model that might work, or at least shows that it's not immediately incoherent that we can have an immediate resurrection that doesn't deny the general resurrection of the dead. Okay, so yeah, so let me ask a question then about this particular point. Yeah. Because it sounds like you're saying there's a sense in which nothing happens between my death and resurrection because, like, I die and then the next moment I'm resurrected. Right. But I'm resurrected with everybody else. Right. So I guess uh, let's, let's say that I die on the 4th of July uh, in the year 2025. And then I guess we'll also say that Jesus brings about the eschaton at, on the 4th of August in 2025. So there's just like, so I die, and then one month later, Jesus comes back and brings about the resurrection of the dead. Okay. Like, it sounds a bit like I'm just kind of skipping over that month, you know, because like I die in July, and then the next moment of my existence is a month later. But you want to say like, there's there's no moment between my death and my resurrection. Well, I, 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 you see, like, I'm kind of I'm kind of confused here, though, because, like, there's, it's not supposed to be a moment here, but it looks like there's a whole month gap there. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So this is, I mean, look, the view gets odd. I mean, you got to think, I mean, it, it has to get mm. odd. I'm trying to, I don't know if I want to say I'm trying to put a square peg into a round hole or not, but it's it's close. Well, I would hope not, because that would just be, like, you Impossible. know, that, then you'd be saying, well, I've got a contradiction, and you're wanting yeah. to deny you've got any contradictions on your hand. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So... On my view, more like technically what's happening is that you, Ryan Mullins, and me, J.T. Mm-hmm. Turner, the substances as we are, are compounded of two temporal parts. So okay. we are, so I don't know how much your listeners know about different theories about time and uh, persistence through time, but in the philosophy of time and persistence, we've got these views that say, and in fact, I think the physical sciences suggest things like this, that look, it's not just the case that we've got three spatial dimensions, we have at least one temporal dimension, and everything is spread out both three-dimensionally and fourth-dimensionally, right? So we're spread mm-hmm. out through space and time. There's a sense in which I want to borrow from that and say we are spread out three-dimensionally, you know, length, width, and height, but then also fourth dimensionally between two times. So, you know, the idea is that you are spread out over two times, a, a what we might call a lowercase p present, the one we're experiencing now as we talk. But then mm-hmm. there's a, a further time, the time of the resurrection of the dead, at which you are also spread out. There's a part of you there. And those two moments together I call the eschatological present. So the capital N now really is two times that coexist. And you are two temporal parts that coexist, just not simultaneously. Uh, so, okay, so I've got this eschatological presentism, 
And so like your standard presentism, like which is what I affirm, says the present exhausts reality. There's just right. one moment exists and that's that. Yeah. Uh, but yours is saying there are two moments that exist. There's this moment and there's the moment of the general resurrection of the dead. Right. And they both exist. And, and, and that's what exhausts reality is those two moments. Yeah, that's right. And I am located at both of those moments because I have parts at each moment. That's right. You're not wholly located at, at any of those moments. You are right. wholly located in the compound present, the, the eschatological present. Um, by the way, I'm borrowing, I, I amend a view from a philosopher named Barry Dainton out of the University of Liverpool. He's got this thing called compound presentism. Um, so mm-hmm. I, you can read that in his book, Time and Space, if you are interested, for those of you listeners out there. But yeah, the, the idea is that there is a compound present in which you wholly exist. It's just that that present, on, on this model anyway, is not the sort of present we normally take for granted. You, you are spread out over time as opposed to just be whole, being wholly located in this one instantaneous temporal moment. Okay, so I guess because I've always just found this to be very hard to get my head around. So, okay, Ditto. so let's go back to like the story I told earlier where I die on July 4th and then yep. the resurrection takes place one month later on August 4th. So the moment before I die, I'm located on July 4th and I'm located on August 4th. Yeah, right. So uh, there's... Yeah, so when I say, when you say I, so that index goal is going to get interesting. Oh, right. Okay. What I really want to say is that uh, Ryan Mullins is located in July 4th, 2025, and August 4th, 2025. Now, here, mm-hmm. that sounds odd on the face of it, but think about it how you are spatially, right? So you, you Ryan Mullins, are located not really just in one individual spot. I mean, we could mm-hmm. carve you up into a left half and a right half. You are right. located in the, you sort of fully overlap a kind of spread out spatial region. I'm going to say right. that the substance Ryan Mullins temporally fully overlaps a spread out temporal region. Right. So, so cause I'm, right now I'm in Scotland. I could go down to the border and I could stand on the border of England and Scotland. Yep. And then so you could say... Well, Ryan is located in England and Scotland. That's right. Why? Well, because he has parts in England and parts in Scotland. And so you're wanting to say, well, the same thing is true with temporal parts. So Ryan, you are located now, but you're also located at the the moment of resurrection in virtue of, well, you've got a part now and another part at that other moment. That's right. Yep. I I guess I have a little bit of worry about my continuity uh, and my identity to this other part because yeah. I, I feel very firmly established in this moment. Yeah. And then now you're telling me, well, well, you're also at this other moment. Yeah. You're at the resurrection and I'm like, I, I'm not experiencing it. I'm not seeing it. I'm yeah. definitely not experiencing it at all. Right. But the other part of me at that moment is experiencing it. Yeah. And I, I'm strongly tempted to say I'm not identical to that other part. And I'm strongly even like to go even further and say, well, screw that guy. Like, that guy's enjoying the resurrection, but I'm, I'm stuck here like talking to you, which is nice, but it's not as good as the resurrection. Yeah, right, right. So, so that guy is you, right? It's just like, suppose, uh, suppose, it got, suppose it was super drastic, like you went to the equator, and the equator was such a bizarre location that like on July 4th, right, on the northern hemisphere, it's like 95 degrees at the equator, but on the southern mm-hmm. hemisphere, it's like 32 degrees Fahrenheit at the equator, right? You'd think, man, 
screw that guy in the you know northern hemisphere enjoying his summer temperatures but that would be an sure. odd thing to say because you're like cursing your left half or something yeah you know there is just you 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 are experiencing both the question is right the the difficulty for my view and a guy named jonathan chan who wrote a book review about this should be coming out in the journal of analytic theology wrote a book review on, on my book if I recall it correctly, raises this difficulty. And honestly, I don't know how to answer just yet. The idea that how, you know, how can you, how can it be the case that I can experience these things, but don't have like epistemic access to it? Like, why mm-hmm. can't this temporal part, I mean, even begin to, you know, think the thoughts I've got at that first moment in the new creation, experience the, you know, uh, the things going on at that first moment in the new creation and so on. And honestly, I don't know how to answer that view or answer that, answer that question yet. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if uh, my, I mean, my sort of first rough way of responding would be, well, look, these same sorts of problems infect four-dimensionalist literature, mm-hmm. right? Like, and of course, they've got them ad infinitum because of all the temporal parts. And I want to say, what if it's just a quirky problem of time and existence as such that we just have this weird kind of inability to access as the substance, have immediate access to all of our temporal parts? I don't know that I like that. That's not super satisfying. But Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's maybe just a consequence of maybe our limits to the side of the eschaton anyway. Yeah, so I guess, because now that I'm thinking through this, so there are a lot of Christian philosophers who want to affirm like an eternalist ontology of time where all moments of time exist. Yeah. And they want to affirm a four-dimensionalist account of persistence, uh, which is that I've got all these temporal parts. Not only that, they have like continuous views of creation. So it's not just like all these temporal parts, it's like infinitely many temporal parts. Yeah, yeah, because like on your view, there's only there's only two temporal parts. Yeah. Uh, whereas like if like an eternalist wants to have their view, like they're going to be like, well, Ryan, there's actually an infinite number of temporal parts of you. Right. Uh, and I'm like, that's a lot of Ryan's. Whereas on 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 your view, like there's only two Ryan's, and so I'm like, well, there's one Ryan. You've got two parts. I've got two parts, right? So yeah, I, I guess I can't say there's too many Ryan's, uh, even though it feels like it. But I guess here's the interesting consequence though: is none of those people could raise this sort of objection to you. Because it's the same objection they're going to have to face in general, plus all the infinite number of temporal parts they throw in there. So the only people who could actually like raise this view would be someone, I guess, like me, who's a presentist, right. and then denies doctrine of temporal parts altogether. Yeah, right. And honestly, I'm sympathetic to that, because I mean, other, other than, look, the problem I'm trying to solve is admittedly ad hoc. Mm-hmm. It's, this we, it's this consequence that I've kind of worked myself into because I deny the intermediate state, but I also want to affirm, because I think the scriptures teach and the tradition teaches, that we are immediately with Jesus when we die. Right. So that immediacy, I have to put in terms of the bodily resurrection and the new creation because I'm denying that robust intermediate state account. So I've got this ad hoc thing I've got to try and solve. How do we do this? Now, normally speaking, mm-hmm. I would want to be just a full-blooded presentist, but I don't want to say that can't be right. It's I don't have the foggiest idea of how to make full-blooded regular old presentism work with with an immediate resurrection. Yeah, with immediate resurrection, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So the so the like you think the biblical arguments are pushing you to this view and so now you're like, well, I need a metaphysics to work it out. Yep. And Christian theology, we do that with a lot of things. We do that with the Trinity. Yep. We do that with the incarnation. We're yep. like, look, it seems like scripture's really pushing us this way. Yep. Now we got to do some interesting philosophical work to tell what that metaphysical story is. That's right. And so you're just trying to do that with the resurrection. Yeah, that's right. And so I want to make that clear, right? I mean, sometimes analytic mm-hmm. theologians get blamed or accused of having our metaphysics push the way we read scripture. 
But oh, for sure. me, it's the exact opposite. It's scriptures pushing me to do this metaphysics. Like all things being equal, yeah. I just want to be a regular presentist. That just seems intuitively right to me. But the scriptures are telling me, or at least suggesting to me, that things may be a little bit more different than that. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for next time when I ask JT questions about resurrection, disability, and so much more.